0: My name is Jenny.
1: My name is Ted.
0: My name is Gray. And,
1: and this, this is, is Animorphology.
2: Animorphology. The invasion. The visitor. The encounter. The message. The predator. The capture. The stranger. The android, the secret. The android. The forgot. The reaction. The chain. The, unknown, the, escape, the warning. The, the decision. The slow departure. The second discovery. The, purpose, the, purpose, the proposed threat. The to conspiracy. The, bias, the separation. The deception. The suspicious. The unexpected, the unexpected the sacrifice. The diversion. The, answer, the beginning. Light Chronicles.
1: What did we read this week?
2: We read part two of the End of Light Chronicles. It's called Alrin's Choice, even though does, does he make a choice? It's unclear. Not really. He made a choice in the past.
1: Did and we actually read this this week?
2: No, we did we not. Did not. <laughs> <laughs> we read it a couple weeks ago and then our recording software did the thing it did once in the past that we thought it wasn't going to do again, but it did. And there were lots of holes in our recording, so we're recording it again. Yeah, and we lost time... about
1: 30 seconds every 30 seconds Yeah, the entire recording.
2: <laughs> it made for a really interesting listen, uh, mm-hmm. but we thought you all wouldn't want that, so we're doing it again. And uh, this time we've made sure that the computer is not going to do the thing it did last time. So you'll get all our words,
0: and it will be wonderful. Hopefully. We'll see how this goes.
1: You want to start by telling us what happens
0: I, d- I Alleran's Choice? I really want to tell you what happens in Alleran's Choice. Okay, so this is the middle third of Andalite Chronicles, and so we begin where we left off last time, where Chapman has just sold out the Earth to the Yerks, and Elfingore is in a bird morph, kind of keeping an eye on things, and he realizes he has to save the Time Matrix that got them into this whole nest to begin with. And I just have a side note here that says the Time Matrix better be really cool. It has thus far not proven to be. (laughs) be. (laughs) Alphabar meets up with fellow cadet Arbron, who is horrifyingly stuck in a taxon morph. And they steal the ship that has the time matrix on it, and then have one of those classic space battles, which is actually quite cool, and they outfly the taxon bug fighters that are trying to track them down. Arbron, who's stuck in taxon morph, attacks Alphancore, and during their fight, they crash into the mountains. Alphancore Tries to find Arbron, who's been taken by a bunch of Taxons, and he does so driving a yellow Mustang convertible, yes. playing the Rolling Stones, thereby hitting at least two more sci-fi tropes. Arbron has joined the Taxon Resistance. The rebellion fighters are planning to attack the spaceport that day, and it goes very poorly. Elvengor ends up facing off against Subvisor Seven, who we will later know as Visor Three. He captures the Hork-Bajir controller that he thinks is Subvisor Seven escapes with the two humans and Alarin. Aloran orders Alphengor to destroy the ship with all the slug jacuzzis on it, which he had already done in part one. Alphengor again refuses. They land to get the time matrix and and Alphengor discovers obviously the two humans were controllers the whole time. (laughs) Chapman has now passed Subvisor 7 into Aloran, thus creating the first Andalite controller. Alphengor tricks the Yurks just long enough to escape with the time matrix and the two humans, but then he has no idea what to do. And so he goes to try and find his dome ship. And he gets out of Z-Space just in time to find that dome ship under attack by some kind of weird living asteroids. The york ship follows them through Z-Space, and Sub 7, now Visor 32, eventually Visor 3, leads an attack against Elfingor and the gang, and part two ends with them being eaten by one of the living asteroids and about to die from lack of air, but presumably they don't die because then there's no preparation. <laughs> or Gore crashing on Earth. Part three is just a really long funeral, but it's beautiful. It's beautifully done.
1: Part three is called An Alien Dies.
2: So, <laughs> so maybe it's Elvengore. It's a very slow death yeah. over yeah. like an entire third of a book. Yeah.
0: A lot happened in this, and yet it's also part two of a three-part book. Yeah. So it's one of those, yeah. like, it's the second. It's like in the trilogy. two
2: towers. It's like it's good,
0: but it, it's standing alone. It's like a little weaker than the other two. No. Yeah. Uh, the worst part about this book by far was that Arbron gets stuck in a morph?
2: Yeah. Yeah, I had forgotten that that happened. Someone actually reminded me shortly before I read this, and I was like, that is that is the worst thing. It's really awful.
1: I wonder if this is why I hate taxons so much. Yeah. Because it's interesting to think about Tobias getting trapped in basically the best thing you can be yeah. trapped yeah. as versus Arbron being trapped as the worst thing you can be trapped yeah. as. Yeah, so actually- the second novel that we run into in the series.
2: I was wondering about this. like. If you had a choice between being trapped as a taxon or being trapped as like an ant, what would you do? Ah. Uh, right?
1: That's pretty bad.
2: It'd be really bad either way. Well, mm-hmm. where am I? Okay, am I a taxon on the
1: taxon homeworld?
2: Yes. You're a taxon in the situation that Arbron finds himself in. Or you're an ant in your own colony, let's say, because otherwise you're just going to die and then your story will be very short. Taxon. Taxon. I think I'd
1: also pick taxon.
2: What would you do, Jenny? I think I would also pick taxon. I feel like there would be more opportunity for a sense of purpose. Mm. And, you know, there might be less pain involved in, like, just kind of losing yourself in the ant mind and just going with that. But,
0: yeah, you wouldn't have much of a life. It's a good question because one thing that we discovered in this book was how the taxons organize to some extent. So at one point, while they're in the mountains, they meet the mother and father of the taxons. The
2: living hive. The
0: living hive. And actually, I thought that was going to be cooler than it was. um, (laughs) There wasn't that much that came of it. Yeah, I I thought it was going to be more... It's
1: really neat, but they don't really do much with it because immediately they just go on the suicide mission. Right.
0: (laughs) And it might have been really interesting to learn more about the taxon fighters and about their religion and how they're organized. Yeah,
1: so what is the living hive?
0: Um... I, I don't
1: know. It's a, it's a giant red glowing mountain.
0: Sort of. I was with tendrils it, like, that it, it
1: are tubes that it can shoot the taxons through.
2: I was picturing like a really huge like ant mound type thing. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it seems to have the power to like create tubes in the earth and like pull taxons in either direction along the tubes, uh, which is pretty cool. I
1: imagine the agrocrag from Guts on Nickelodeon. You guys, I don't know any
2: of
0: the words you just said except Nickelodeon. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay. Right in,
1: listeners. Back me up on this.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I only vaguely remember that. I'm
1: sure it was on right before Animorphs <laughs> on Nick at Night back in the day. Well,
0: so that is oh, crazy. yeah. And, of course, you'll always have to watch
2: Animorphs because it was such a good show.
0: Yeah, so the <laughs> tendrils are three or four feet in diameter and extend into the rocks. I guess that tells
2: us how big a taxon is.
0: Oh, oh. <laughs> I, I mean, I knew they were 10 feet long, but three feet around. Four, well, in diameter. Like
2: four feet maybe in diameter. Ugh.
1: And they've like co-evolved with the taxons? Like they're not taxons. They're like a No, but they're, form. they're
2: sentient. They have thought speech. So they right. can like speak into Super the thought mind. speech. Yes, super thought speech. Which we were, we were theorizing last time is maybe one reason that the the taxons were such easy prey for the Yerks is because they've sort of evolved like their hunger is insatiable and they can only really control it and themselves when they're being sort of I don't know if controlled is the right word but when they have this other voice in their head telling them what to do so they sort of are they co-evolved like you said with the living hive and so maybe the Yerks fulfill a similar purpose for them and Helping them to control themselves,
1: right? The Yurks can boss them around without having them succumb to the hunger as frequently, yeah. In the same way that the living hive can, yeah. And it's interesting, Elfangor, even in Andalite form, feels this overpowering urge to kind of submit or something. Mm-hmm. Like he says, the voice is so overwhelming.
0: Mm-hmm. It was like hearing a planet speak. He staggered under the psychic cool. blow. Yeah.
1: But wouldn't the wouldn't like viscer Three want to morph this thing? Like, do they not know about does it? it not? Like does really, it have DNA? I don't know. Can you can Probably things not. without? Can things have thought speech without DNA? Well,
2: why does everything have DNA in the first place? It's right.
1: Well, yeah, we've talked about this before. <laughs> that all alien, like there's some kind of universal.
2: Yeah, but it did seem like this was sort of this actually was the planet speaking. Like the tax on homeworld is in a way alive, and I think that is something that comes out in these books a lot. Like you get sort of the power of the Earth usually because they're usually on mm-hmm. Earth, and Cassie sort of channels this a lot and. I think this is something that maybe you know, Applegate is interested in, like the Earth as having its own consciousness and power and because this is an alien planet, it can be true to a greater extent.
0: Yeah, so um, I, had, I I like that. I had thought it was more of the queen bee, or the queen right. egg. So too, like there's yeah. more
1: hives than one, but maybe it, the entire planet is one sentient being mm. that's an interconnected hive, mm. right?
0: A hive mind it. of hives. Right. I mean, it's large enough that the, high, the Living High of learns about Arbron, that he's mm-hmm. originally Andalite, and draws him into yeah. the Resistance, which we don't get a lot of information about. Resistance has a pretty poor
2: plan. It was kind of a bummer. Like, Arburn shows up, and he's like, Alphimor, this is going to be great. I know about, like, engineering and tactics and all this stuff, and I can help them with, like, things that the taxons don't understand. And he's like, yeah, we're just all going to attack the spaceport tomorrow. And it's like, wait, what? Like, shouldn't you use this intelligence you were just talking about and come up with a more complex plan? Right,
1: And it, it makes – so there's actually a pretty interesting parallel between Arburn and Tobias there in terms of mm. the, what they go through, right? So they get trapped in this form, and then – They succumb to the instincts, and they're really horrified by that. And then, we haven't talked about it yet, but Armin tries to get Elfangor to kill him. They have this, like, suicidal urge. And then finds this purpose where he's like, I can be part Taxon and part Andalite. Like, Tobias is kind of like, I can be part Mm -hmm. Hawk and part human. And then, you know, he can... Be his own kind of unique thing, and he sort of, he has a, a similar thing to Elfangor where there's life, there's hope, like, I can find more purpose and stuff. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, it's undercut a little bit by this crazy plan, and
2: it's pretty at the complex. end, they
1: basically leave Arburn to yeah. die.
2: Yeah, not the plan. The plan was not complex. I feel like the the psychology of Arburn in this is very complex. Like, he has all of these conflicting urges, and he has all these moments of redemption, and all these moments of giving in to his instincts when he shouldn't. And um, and it it reminds me of the kind of thing we see a lot in these books where like where there's a complex moral issue sometimes they'll come down on one side of it but it's really like a lasting conclusion that like wipes away all the doubt even if Rachel wants it to be like usually it's more like these things are kind of all true and all of these parts are still part of Arbron, and he's has this great purpose now but he's still a little bit you know maybe kind of wants to die a little bit and He also has all this shame, like he doesn't want his parents to know what happened to him, even though he is doing this cool thing now.
1: Right. And El Fingor, even though he wants to give Arbrin some hope about his situation, still keeps thinking this is the worst thing that could happen to anyone.
2: Yeah, well, the hope he's trying to give him is like, we'll find a way to get you out of this, which does he actually think there can be a way? I think we talked about this last time. Like, if he doesn't, that's really cruel.
1: Right. Yeah. How much do Andolites actually know about Naflet's? Like, what you know. Uh, mm. How much do Andalite scientists even really know? Because morphing technology isn't that old, right? Right.
2: I feel like it's sort of part and parcel of Elfengor's naivete, where he doesn't really believe that bad things will happen to like him and his people. Mm. Like he is like, oh, you're trapped, but I'm sure we'll find a way to get out of it. And he doesn't want to do things that might be morally questionable because he's sure at the beginning of this part of the book that like he can do the right thing and carry the day, and he sort of loses that sureness when a bunch of stuff goes wrong. And then he's like, oh, well, maybe all of my morals are just... He kind of goes too far in the opposite direction. Maybe everything I believe just is just dumb. I don't know what I believe anymore. I don't believe in anything. And,
1: right, right. Yeah. yeah, so we should talk more about Elfangor. But the, the thing I wanted to say about Arburn was... Um, I think it's kind of related to that. Arburn doesn't get an easy ending, like you were saying. Like, it's, mm-hmm. it's presented in this complicated way, where he... Doesn't become a Knothlet for any heroic purpose, right? Mm, yeah. He gets he got he, he gave into the hunger and got trapped over the time limit and we don't really know why it happens off screen And he doesn't get like a noble death saving Elfangor or anything He doesn't there's nothing easy that Elfangor can like play into his head. Is like, okay Well, you know at least this makes sense. It was worth it in some way, right? Mm-hmm. Like Arborin's kind of abandoned in this kind of like senseless thing, and I guess Arban the helps them escape, but it, it doesn't really lead to anything. You know? Yeah, the
2: last thing we see of him is him. Elfhagor is like, Arista Arbron, you will stop. You will do your duty," and he he hesitates. He kind of listens to that, but it's not like a clear cut. Like, yes, now he will have no trouble with his instincts, or now he's like pure Andelite warrior.
1: Right, mm-hmm. right. But I, I want to talk more about Elfengor being a, a like a leader in this book. He seems to be struggling internally a lot, but like you were saying in the summary grade, there's a lot of like cool action sequences and things where Alfangor <laughs> comes off looking pretty awesome from the outside.
2: Yeah, from the outside, he probably would look pretty cool in most of this, as long as you don't look too closely at the actual decisions he makes, which are mostly very dumb.
1: Right. So like maybe Wood is actually reassured by Alfangor saying, like, we'll, we'll get help for you. Right? He pro- I'm
0: sure he
2: wants to believe that.
1: Right
0: and in the first part we saw the two of them they're both cadets and there doesn't seem to be you know neither of them is necessarily kind of better than the other they're both cadets they have different strengths Arbron is a very good exotologist which isn't necessarily looked on as well as being a warrior but they're both kind of getting their feet under them and they get sent on this mission together and so on but in this we very much see Alhenghor taking on a leadership role that he wasn't able to so much in the first one over his fellow cadet. And Mm -hmm. part of that, I think, is that Arbron is trapped in Morph. And I think part of it, too, is that Elthangor seems to thrive under that pressure. He makes Mm. terrible (laughs) decisions, but he makes Uh, the decisions quickly. That's Um, true,
2: but is that good? I mean, it depends (laughs) on... He did have to make decisions.
0: Someone has to make decisions. He doesn't
2: get frozen into indecision he doesn't necessarily keep a clear head the whole time like he mm-hmm. doesn't think about the extremely obvious thing that like of course these two humans just waiting by the spaceship have been taken mm-hmm. by the Yurks. So like, does
1: Elanger have a natural leadership personality like Jake <laughs>
0: That's what I was going to suggest that there there's some similarity between the two of them their decisions aren't always the right decisions but they have that They're ability of making them yeah to make the decision and the hard right. choice And
1: you I was wondering like if Arbron kind of looks up to Elfangor the same way that Axe might Mm -hmm. as kind of like, like Elfangor always feels really self-conscious and they're, they're young, right? We get inside Mm -hmm. his head or whatever, but he's trying to say these brave things. Mm -hmm. He's a really good. um,
2: He's good at bravado.
1: (laughs) Yeah. He's good at bravado. He's good at flying. You know, when they have this awesome scene where like Elfangor's flying and Arbron's shooting, they work really well together and, is like, oh wow, Arburn is like such a hero in this moment. But presumably Arburn is thinking the same thing <laughs> yeah, about Elfingor.
2: And Elfingor must have like the kind of personality where people think he's really cool and look up to him because he somehow, at, after the end of this book, through some series of events that we cannot even fathom yet, becomes like this super well-known Andalite hero. Right.
0: Well, and not just a hero, but a warrior, right? Mm-hmm. His nickname is Beef Elfengor. Beast. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's because he's so built, as we
2: see on the cover. Okay, I'm going to try that sentence
0: again. <laughs> oh my God, no, oh my it was so good. Yeah? Uh, all right. His nickname is Beast Elfengor. I think there's a lot that needs to happen between the end of this book and where we see him at the beginning of Animorphs to get from him having these moral quandaries about the fight and attacking the Yerks and their pools to becoming this war hero for the Andalites.
2: Yeah, and there are are like a few different pieces of that. There's a thing where at the end, I mean, we leave him dying of oxygen deprivation and he kind of accepts his death and is like, yep, I made all these mistakes, I should die. So obviously he has quite a ways to come back from that. But there's also like, yeah, he has all these issues with how the Andalites fight the war. The Andalite war machine we've seen maybe has some, like... Isn't morally pure? Does he have to end up compromising a bunch of his morals to have this position as Andorite hero, or does he manage to like forge a path where he's like true to those morals and like bra- like maybe raises the ethical level of the army? I don't know the military. Right.
1: Yeah, and there seem to be sort of at this point in the war, there are these kinds of like secrets, like the Yorks are doing better. There's more space traffic mm-hmm. on the Texan home homeworld. There's a taxon resistance, but the Andalites have cast all the taxons as kind of evil, willing accomplices, right? So, like, mm-hmm. if Elfanger goes back, presumably he brings some of that information back. But we don't learn anything like this from Axe's point of view later. And it's it's kind of unclear... Right. Yeah. The version of the Endolites we get now seems to be the same version of the Endolites we have twenty years later.
2: Yeah, we don't. I mean, we haven't seen that much, and Axe is pretty young and naive, so maybe we wouldn't know. I
1: right. do know. Right. Or yeah, maybe Elfinger gets sworn to secrecy. He's read into the. <laughs> he's read into the endelite CIA, and then. That doesn't can't sound do anything like a really it. good thing. Well, so the other thing about Elfinger we haven't talked about yet is that. He is a human at heart, right?
2: Oh, yeah. So we learn
1: so much about his... So you were saying he's struggling with his sudden need to be a leader, and he's worried about making all these bad choices. And then because of that, we start to see... Or in addition to that, we start to see him dream of escaping to Earth. Yeah,
2: like very specifically. He finds these, like, magazines in the Skritna ship, and it's like, Earth is so beautiful. And I need to find the thing with the cigarette ad because it was great. I flipped through pictures of humans doing things I could not understand, but then there was one picture I understood immediately. It showed a marvelously tall waterfall. The waterfall crashed into a pool surrounded by trees, all of them green. Overhead was a blue sky. Two humans were smiling and sticking tiny white cylinders into their mouths. There was human writing beneath the picture. I don't read human very well, but I was sure it was a poem to the beauty revealed in the picture.
1: (laughs) (laughs) There's so much here.
2: There really is. I mean, I, I didn't really pick this out the last time, but I don't read human very well. Does he mean like at the time or now? Na- like, did he read human at all at that point?
0: Right, why does he It was a weird thing human? to say. It's a very weird thing yeah. to say. Didn't and even if he can read it now, does it matter? Because it was he couldn't at the time. Yeah. I don't, it doesn't seem, the implication of this is that they don't work visually. I would like to read the next time that same image comes up. <laughs> Please do. So he's talking, Gore is talking to Lauren, and he describes to her the pictures of Earth. It looked very beautiful, wonderful, delicious-looking grass, and tall trees, <laughs> and streams of water that bubbled across stones. Is your home like that? Lauren says, we do have places like that. There's a place we went once back when I was little. My dad was still with us before he went to the war. It's a place called Yosemite. We camped out in a tent. Yosemite is like that. And Elfengor says, and did you stick small white cylinders in your mouth and <laughs> smile at the beauty of it all? And then she realizes that she's that they were he was looking at cigarette ads, and that the white cylinders are cigarettes. They're bad for you, actually, very bad for you.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Then he's like, "You go into nature and stick poisonous things into your mouth and then smile," which yes, yes, we do. Some people do that.
1: But then they make a date to go to Yosemite together. They do,
2: and it's so cute. I
1: love it. I I love the cigarette ad thing is so perfect for so many reasons, (laughs) right? It's like he's. It's his escapist fantasy, and it's also like an escapist fantasy for people on Earth too, right? It's like advertising, and he doesn't seem to be aware at all that this kind of thing could exist it's right it's an escapist mean,
2: fantasy that is very naive that's like rooted in a completely wrong conception of what he's looking at right
1: and he he has the silly idea that like oh you know there are pictures of like cities and that looks really unpleasant with all these angles and gray <laughs> stone buildings and then there's nature he's like well you know i've met two humans and one is good and one is bad so <laughs> lauren i bet is from nature and chapman is from city <laughs>
0: <laughs> Lauren's like, no, not so much. Which is very, it's a funny way to look at it, but also brings me to another point that we talked about last time, which is Alvin Gore's complete inability to recognize or appreciate propaganda. Yeah. Because the advertisements, he just doesn't get it. Why would you have this? Right. Mm-hmm. Or
1: if it's portrayed, it must be true. Like, it's almost like it is propaganda and he's, fall- he's so used to falling mm-hmm. for it. Right.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. And that is something that... I think we see in the Andalite world as well that in the first, the first time we saw the Andalites was in, was it book eight, the alien, mm-hmm. when Ax, Ax calls, home. Yeah. calls home, right, and he talks to the general, and the general says, Elphengor, whom we all admire, who's a war hero, he definitely didn't give the humans this technology. It must have been you. You did that, right? And Ax realizes that he's meant to take the fall for Elphengor, and. Gore here doesn't realize that that kind of thing could happen with Mm -hmm. the Andalites. He's very naive in his view of what the Andalite world is like. And for example, we find out that one of the reasons Allarin is Mm -hmm. disgraced is that he was part of the effort to save the uh, Hork-Bajir homeworld before it was taken over by um, by the Yerks. And what happens is that the the Andalites use a quantum virus yep, yep. on the horde homeworld. And somehow, Aloran is involved in that effort and then is disgraced because of it. And it's unclear whether he's disgraced because it seems to have worked, right? They've destroyed the horde homeworld.
1: But there, but are, there still are still a lot But yeah, still, yeah, there are
0: so Horde-Bajir. many horde that they're always <laughs> right. fighting,
2: like, Twenty one years in the future, tons of work to so, learn.
1: Yeah, so I what I was saying last time is I think that if he had used a quantum virus and succeeded, he probably would not be disgraced, mm-hmm, right? Because yeah. like the Andalites would have covered it up enough or they would have they would have spun some story. So either he wanted to do it and didn't or he did it but it was too late mm-hmm. or like something so that you know the mission was a have failure. It must the second
2: one because it does seem like it actually got used and like something really dark happened. Right. On the Har- yeah, Har- and he Har- talks Har- about
1: Har- the ashes mm-hmm. of the Harpgeorl yeah. Har- mm-hmm. world, which is a really grim image.
0: And it I think sort of my theory about this is that you know that he, that Al-Aurin is being um, set up to take the fall the Andalites, using this. Yeah, I mean, I think it
2: probably was his idea, or, like, his thing, because it right. doesn't seem like he's and, ashamed of it or mad. And like, he,
1: called, he says Elfangor, or, like, you're a weak, moralizing fool, like yep. the people back yep. then, right? So it's something... There was some Elfangor-like person who was yeah. holding... restraining him.
2: But I do bet that there was... His relationship to the Andalite military hierarchy is not just, he did a bad thing, and everyone knows it was bad and disapproves of it. Because they... He's still in the military hierarchy. They haven't like exposed his story and been like, this is what happened. It was really bad. We're never gonna do this kind of thing. It's just this like vague shame that probably stems from like they can't approve it, but if like Ted was saying if it had worked, they would have
0: been okay with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it actually really gives another level of insight into the PTSD that Allarin has exhibited especially during the first part of this where they're talking it was the the non-metaphor right that these veterans came back and were really damaged by what they had done Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think we see that here too that Mm -hmm. it's not that he experienced the violence and that is why he's traumatized it's that he performed the violence and that Mm -hmm. can also lead to PTSD and it's an interesting view of that and that he has kind of leaned into it um, in some way that he's trying to destroy these yurks even though they are defenseless and i wonder if part of that is to try and make up for it
2: yeah he's sort um, of doubling down
0: on like this
2: is the right way to fight this war even though these yurks are not like not they're not even combatants in the sense of the yurks that we saw I and mean, we talked about this a little in the last in 11.5 in the in the sense of the yurks in book six who were on earth a place where they are invading they were like actively like to take over these humans in this hospital. These Yurks are on a planet that, like, voluntarily is giving them harbor. Like, it's even more questionable.
0: Well, aren't they on a transport ship going into the... Into the, the taxon home world. But, like, the so. Texan
2: hosts are voluntary. Like, the Texans have welcome them well, there. some, some of them. That. <laughs> That's true. That's true. But it's not as clear-cut an invasion as the Earth invasion.
1: I think you're framing it well that it's kind of like the ends justify the means whatever they are mm-hmm. right that's the lesson that he's taken from his experience and he's mm-hmm. sort of like he sees Alfengor saying like well we have these moral principles we have to follow Follow as yeah. being really naive because he said well yeah, if in a war changed his, yeah. you know winner's right mm-hmm. history we we've got either win or not
2: if he changed his mind now he would have to question
0: the actions he took in the past and that would destroy him internally right mm-hmm. and it is something that we've talked about before that these Yerks are defenseless because they are, you know, swimming in a jacuzzi tub in a transport ship, but that soon they will take over Taxons, or worse, hork who are themselves innocent bystanders. So waiting for the Yerks to infest other beings in order to destroy them doesn't it's seem not great. better. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And it puts other uh, young alarans like Ilfangor and Arborin, through the same kind of traumatic war experience that he
2: had. Mm-hmm, Yeah. I think I, I brought up last time that, like, it's definitely complicated because, like, the goal of the war isn't destroy all Yerks. Like, the goal is to keep them from infesting other beings. So, it's not like either we kill them now while they're in these bats or we kill them when they're in, like, Horquagir. It's, like, ideally they would keep them from infesting other beings and they would only kill the other beings when they really have to because they're, like, getting in the way of their operations. But, like, it's pretty naive to, like, not think that these Yurks will be in beings that we'll have to kill later. I mean,
1: mm-hmm. maybe, but all the Andalites are really gung ho about burning slugs, right? That's kind <laughs> of like that's all they say. They're about like killing the Yurks. There's no kind of even though like Elfhame has a little bit of this moralizing stuff going on, but yeah. I don't think we see the same stuff from X. I feel like twenty years down the line. He's even more indoctrinated into, like, mm-hmm. Yorks are mm-hmm. evil, bad, filthy creatures, and mm-hmm. we can't cooperate with them, and we have to kill them all as quickly as possible, mm-hmm. right? He's yeah. not—and he—like, in Axe, in um, book—I guess it's in book 8, all the Animorphs kind of turn on him, because he's like, you didn't tell us that people would start dying if we destroyed the Kindrona, and Axe is like, duh, it's war, right? Mm-hmm. He's not—he doesn't—he's not—he's not as conflicted about that kind of thing.
2: yeah. But he also—it is still the same sort of naivete. Like it's not like he's come to terms with the cost of war. He's sort of like, it is important to go into battle, and you know, right. danger is glorious, and we must sacrifice ourselves for this.
1: Right. But he hasn't. He doesn't have this other ending to of the war in mind. It's about yeah. I mean, I don't know that Elspethor does really right. either. That
2: was more me reading into it. Yeah. Because um, mm-hmm. they do want to destroy the Yorks, but yeah, they. Elfengor is getting this from somewhere, this idea that we don't kill defenseless right. opponents. Right. And Like, he's not making that up.
1: Right. And I think the the Animorphs is certainly... I mean, the Animorphs series is certainly making the case that Alaren is wrong, because we got in Book 10 the story of the Pemelites and the Howlers, <laughs> which plays out in parallel to this kind of story that we're getting about the Endolites and the Horpogeer, yeah. where the Pemelites are cast as this perfect, peaceful species that's super evolved and they're all about fun and games and things like that and that the howlers are like the most evil species that comes out of nowhere and burns the planet to a crisp and even though some of the pemolites escape they've been infected with some kind of biological weapon that like slowly kills them which Mm -hmm. sounds to me like some kind of quantum (laughs) virus and that whole parable is like oh wow you know like war is like so bad and the Pemelites were so good and then plugged into our familiar Andalites and hark you're like, okay, so the Andalites were willing to do what the Howlers did, more or less.
2: Yeah, um, I mean, for, so, a, that's pretty
1: bad. for at least
0: a reason. The Howlers didn't seem to have a reason at all, but we don't know. Right. And one thing that also goes along with that is it seems to be a very horrific way to die, mm-hmm. the way they describe it. It's a disease of space-time that slowly breaks down the force that holds subatomic particles together and slowly disintegrates whatever it affects living creatures affected with a quantum virus find their very molecules breaking down, it can take days, weeks of agony. As opposed to, you know, torching the planet from space or something. Like, if you're going to wipe them all out, might as well do it mercifully. Oh, so it's interesting, this idea that the books are coming down against Alarind, which
2: I think is pretty much true. But there is a weird thing that keeps happening where alfinger's family keeps not killing Visser 3. In, under circumstances, <laughs> where... They really, really should. And I feel like the books like keep portraying that choice of like, you have Visser III, helpless in front of you, the abomination. In Axe's case, Visser three is like, please kill me. Or, you know, Alren is like, please kill me. And in Elfingor's case, it's like, if this guy gets out, he's gonna spread all this intelligence. It's gonna be like the biggest breach of intelligence in the entire war up to this point. And in neither case, do they just kill him? And the books don't really justify that. And I was wondering, like, is it that it just feels obvious, like, to abrogate that, like, well, that would be wrong? Or is it that, like, it's not really clear, but, like, this is a kid series and there are lines she doesn't want to cross? Like, I don't know.
1: Well, it's interesting because it's, it's highly constrained by the plot,
2: yeah. right?
1: You can't kill Visser Three. Right. That's it just doesn't, true. it's not That's that kind true. of thing. I hadn't actually right? really thought about that. Right. They
2: need to keep him alive because he's the main. Opponent.
1: So but it, so it's fascinating that, that they sort of have to deal with it this way, right? Mm-hmm. And like they've sort of picked this idea that Elfangor and Viscer 3 are nemeses. And so they have to have them <laughs> facing each other down. And we know that it ends with Viscer 3 cannibalizing Elfangor at the end.
2: Does it count if he's not in Andalite form at the end? Is it still cannibalism?
1: I don't know. Let's not go down this road. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but I do think that that is a um, it works in the arc of the series for Axe at least that he's unable to kill Mr. Yeah, three in yeah, cold mm-hmm. blood in book eight and probably the endorphs are going to face later, harder choices yeah. as the series goes on and it's, it's sort of like how we're seeing their relationship to the Hork-Bajir con- uh, controllers getting more and more complicated mm-hmm. like in book 11 for the first time Jake isn't all about mm-hmm. murdering them he's kind of like oh man I kind of realize how bad this is yeah. they were killing these people
0: I don't remember which of you said this last time, but a thing that made me laugh was realizing that Aloran, when he is last himself before becoming the viscer, before being taken over by the Yurk, is facing off against Gore, who is not following directions. Mm -hmm. And then the next time, he is not a controller.
1: Right, 20 years later, (laughs) 25 years years later.
0: It's the younger brother who's not obeying (laughs) (laughs) directions.
1: Alarin
2: can never get anyone, and then in between for 20 years, Vister Three never listened to what he wanted. No one ever listens to Alarind.
1: I just I feel so bad for Aloran. from his point of view. Like I, he must not have realized who Axe was at the time because he would uh-huh. have handled it differently. But he must have realized by now. Like it must have dawned on him at some point but in the why, past few books. Why
2: would it? How? What would make him? Does he know? Did he find out in Megamorphs one that Axe is Elvengor's brother? Does he know Axe is Elvengor's brother? Why
0: would he know that?
1: I I thought it came up then. Maybe, Maybe it not. Did. I
0: don't remember. Anyway, can you imagine?
1: Yeah, i'm mad he must <laughs> It's, uh, it's pretty rough. But it's so it's interesting that you bring that up, because I think in Aloran's own twisted way, he's trying to help the Ariths become successful soldiers. Uh, so we saw in the first part of this book, after Elf Angor um, is in battle for the first time, Aloran's pretty kind to him and sort of saying, it's, pr- that's, it's a pretty bad experience. Everyone goes through this your first time, like, you'll be Okay. Uh, and here he's seen that Elfengor is like not willing to be cold hearted enough to vaporize all of these inactive yurks or whatever. And so after they're escaping the planet, he's like, okay, Elfengor, I'm going to basically put you in this escalating series of challenges to make you cross lines to harden you up. Mm-hmm. So first, he gets, they have what, who they think is uh, Subvisor 7 in Horbagir form who gets ejected out of the airlock and he makes Elfangor do that and then he's kind of like alright Elfangor, next step you're going to have to destroy all these yurks and like this is it's for your own good training right? course, yeah which is mm-hmm. it's it's really messed up that he thinks that that is for the best but I don't think it's what Elfangor mm-hmm. thinks which is that Alren sees him as his enemy I think Alren's trying point. to yeah. he's trying to break him so that he can remake him as like a more successful soldier
0: that's a really good point and Ironically, it's Elf and Gore's decision not to obey that direction that actually leads to the creation of this III, or whatever. Yeah. Because uh, at the time, that particular Yerk is controlling Chapman. And he says to him later, I couldn't have let you burn that transport ship full of my people. If you had gone along with and I'd have had to try to stop you in the guise of Chapman, and so would my brother Yerk and The Human Girl. Mm-hmm. So he would have actually had to show his hand and presumably be taken down by Aloran and Alphengor working together, uh, but because Alphengor had this moment of mercy, it didn't go quite.
2: Yeah, and I think this is kind of what knocks some of the naivete out of Alphengor's mm-hmm. moral outlook here. Not in a very, like... Thoughtful way, he's kind of like, "Oh man, that went badly. I guess all my ideas are wrong." Well,
1: okay, so he's unwilling to kill at uh, controller Allerun, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, and that's sort of because he has this idea. Okay, well, the only way I can escape, they know there are two Andalites, so if I make them chase the viscer then what I can escape for a little body bit. body
2: out of the ship.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. He could have just killed him and dumped the body, or done yep. something else, right? Whatever. But then uh, when he's in Z space and he's really despairing. He has no problem lying to the um, Yurk in Lauren's head and saying, Oh, you know, Mm -hmm. I'll, you know, just eject you and you'll be in space and someone will thaw you or whatever. And it'll be fine. Like, let's negotiate. You know, that's better than you starving. And then, instead of ejecting him into neutral space, he ejects him into a star and murders the Yurks. So, like, whatever qualms he had about yeah, destroying like a whole like transport ship of a tiny of bit irks, of plausible
2: deniability, like, maybe he won't go into the star, but it's like, he was pretty close yeah, to it. He so... makes a joke about
1: it to us, yeah. the readers, or yeah. listeners, to his memory It sounds
2: like he kind of has moral fatigue, in a way. Yes,
1: mm-hmm. that's a great way of putting yeah. it. And then he's sort of in this, like, hopeless, well, I guess I'm going to die at the end of the book,
0: anyway. Mm-hmm. Yes, my notions of proper behavior had brought disaster. I was a fool, a silly child living out storybook notions of decency and fairness.
1: And I'm going to be interested to see where part three lands on this, because I think yeah. the point you brought up, Jenny, is really good, that this is if sparing Aloran was bad. It certainly seems like based on the plot of the series that sparing Aloran is bad. Right? It was like a <laughs> huge mistake and that he's, he was wrong to have all these morals. But at the same time, it's not really in keeping with the themes of the series. No. So how, how are we going to reconcile mm-hmm. that in... In part three, it's going to be interesting.
2: Yeah, and I think we had said before, like so much of what I remember, and I think Ted, you said what you remember of Andalite chronicles is in part three. We haven't hit it yet, yet. (laughs) so that's going to be fun.
0: Yeah,
2: we learned a lot about Andalites in this, also as we did in the first part.
1: I know, it's so much fun. World building.
2: Someone was arguing on Twitter that Andalites definitely can close their stock eyes, which I do not think is true. And I think Let's see
1: the text. Show me the text where it
2: happens. (laughs) It hasn't happened yet in the text, but there's a lot more evidence here that they can't. When he wakes up after they crash the ship in the mountains, uh, he says, My stock eyes swiveled quickly to look around, but I realized one eye was blinded. So there's no... My stock eyes opened. There's no, like, I thought it was closed, but I opened it and, you know, it was still blinded. Like, there's no, like, he doesn't blink. And then later he says, my st- second stock eye was starting to clear a little. I felt it and realized it had just been covered with mud. She's like, there's a very conspicuous absence of any eyelids there, just saying.
1: Right. It's like a little camera that you have to wipe off yeah, the, yeah, uh, the lens. Yeah,
2: yeah. And, Gray, you were pointing out that, like, he just, like, what, rubbed his eyeball there, <laughs> which... Apparently, yeah. And if you don't have eyelids on your stock eyes, they would have to be pretty tough eyeballs. It's like, real well, gross. They go running and stuff. Yeah, they need safety goggles. <laughs> <laughs> I think we were positing last time that when he's driving in the Mustang, he needs, in order to be like maximally cool, he needs sunglasses. And so we also need sunglasses for his stock eyes, hmm. which I think would actually, upon reflection, be like little cups that you
0: put over them. Yeah, like little monocle
2: sunglasses. No, I think, I think it would be like... Um, you know, it'd like a, a, it would be like a little cat like, thing that would just go on top.
1: Yeah. Amazing. Wait, should we talk about all the really cool things, or do <laughs> you have Miranda Light things first?
2: I mean, there are more like things, but we can talk about the cool things also.
0: Then we have to talk about the Mustang. They're so Let's cool. Let's talk about the Mustang. There's
1: so many amazing, really cool <laughs> moments in this book. Like, it's amazing and actiony y and, and really great space, I don't know, space drama.
0: Mm-hmm. There's a lot of really fun bits of this. It reminded me, I was saying last time, it reminded me a little bit of a Star Wars book in that it's very action-oriented, it's pretty episodic, and there are some awesome chase scenes and, like, yeah. vehicle mm-hmm. things. Right.
1: And- First, they have this, like... A, we learned that Arburn is a taxon forever, so that's bad. But Elfinger and yeah. Arburn immediately have to do this, like, taxon espionage thing, which is very Star Wars. They kind of, like, BS their way <laughs> into a taxon freighter by trying to speak in taxon, and then he's... the. Uh, it, it might be a GED controller is mm-hmm. like... I can understand you use the control pad and they like be boop out a little message about how they're here to fix the ship and they get on the ship and they fly away but they can't escape so then they have to go through the atmosphere and of course Mm -hmm. it's really dangerous to fly at high speeds in atmosphere so they're literally burning a track across the taxon desert right at top speed (laughs) and they the speeds are insane they they go like seven miles in 5.8 seconds which is like 4400 miles an hour. And then they come up with the awesome strategy where, so Elfangor is a good flyer and Arbrin is a good shot. And so even Mm -hmm. though he's in taxon morph, he thinks he can make the shot. So they uh, slam on the brakes, all of the bug fighters go flying past them. And then Arbrin on his many, many needle legs is able, he's like really balanced despite Mm -hmm. the braking, And so he can, you know, go pew, 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 destroy the bug fighters. So cool. And Elfingor is like, he's like, oh my god, you know, in this moment, Arbron was like a true hero. It's amazing.
2: <laughs> I like how that's his definition of heroism. Mm-hmm. But also, this is this is why taxons do the subtle work. They're really stable
0: and high speeds and
1: yeah. all that stuff. So they're 10 foot long, giant worms.
2: Yes.
0: Very subtle. So then immediately after that, they crash in the desert, and Arbron gets taken by these, uh, by the resistance fighters. and mm-hmm. taxons. So... Uh, Gore is trying to figure out what to do, and this is where he finds the magazines with the cigarette ads and so on. But then he also finds a bright yellow machine with four wheels in the ship cargo, and it's a Mustang convertible. So he removes the cloth top of the convertible so he can fit. So he can fit mm-hmm. right. So like hind legs, legs in the back <laughs> yeah. and
1: four legs in the front.
0: Oh, I didn't think of that. Yep, that's definitely. Yeah. <laughs> And then he must use his he so then he uses his four hoofs. Oh no no! He took the seats out.
1: Okay, he takes yeah. the seats out. Yeah, because I was like sense. that
0: wouldn't that wouldn't quite right. Work. It removes the chairs from the sh- machine, removes the flimsy cloth top. Then he uses his four hoof on the pedal. So by the way, uh, automatic, I think. I think would oh, it would to be very difficult to drive yeah. to do the clutch. Like he might be able to, but it seems unlikely. He would That's a to, little he less He would be cool, able to reach honestly.
1: with his little T Rex arms. Yeah.
0: I also feel like well, he wouldn't know how to drive it if we're a manual. Like that would be hard to figure out. Like there are a lot of different right. There's a lot of things, things to, to put together. So he's driving with his little T Rex arms. He's, you know, pushing down the the pedal, and then he discovers that it has an actual. Tape drive, astoundingly Amazing. primitive, <laughs> um, pushes the buttons on the keypad, keypad, twisted the knobs, and the computer began to play music. And it plays, "I can't get no satisfaction."
1: <laughs>
0: so he ends up driving across it's the like, desert. Why is this screaming happening? Who would? What kind of species right. would well, do this? They
1: don't. They're not used to make. They like. They don't make noise. They don't have mouths. Yeah. There's no equivalent.
2: Yeah, we were contemplating the idea of thought, speak music. And would it be possible to sing in thought speech? And if it is, could you sing multiple, like, harmony lines at a time? Like, could you be, like, an entire choir on your own? As yeah, it's like? interesting
1: that they can't... They don't do multitasking thought speech where they're saying different things to different people at the same time. Oh,
2: that would be so hard. They don't
1: do two voices at once. It's really they don't weird. Seem It to seems to be limited by how mouths are limited, mm, which is totally our Narratively arbitrary.
2: convenient. Yeah. But I bet there are, like... We know there are Andalite mystics. I bet there are Andalites who like really refine their thought speech abilities and can like split their thought streams and right. like, really multitask Cool, like that. I
1: like it. We'll put it in the
2: Andalite RPG. Nice. Yes. Actually, I think that
1: exists. So
0: <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. That's amazing. Shout out to whoever does that podcast. <laughs> we'll listen to it one day. As soon as I'm not worried about spoilers, I will listen to all of your things.
2: Wait, wait, wait. We forgot to mention that while he's driving across the desert in a Mustang, listening to the Rolling Stones, he's also drinking Dr. Pepper out of a pan.
1: Right. What does he call it? It's like brown...
0: Fizzy brown liquid or something. Bubbling brown water. Oh, yeah. There you go. Which is very funny because it means that I had thought that when they ate, it was that they crushed the leaves and then kind of absorbed the nutrients into their hooves. And it turns out no, their hooves are straws, <laughs> because he's as he's driving, uh, he has one hoof. It must be—I don't know how he's doing this, but he has—he's got one hoof pushing down on the gas pedal, one hoof in the Dr. Pepper, and he's it, the bubbling brown water was running up his hoof, which, up the inside of it, presumably. Yep. Yep
1: that's so weird and i love it i just i can't this picture is so perfect i don't know what it is about (laughs) but he's meant to live on earth he's meant to be a human right like this is is like the most human thing you could imagine the convertible right we were saying last time all he needs is the sunglasses right and Mm -hmm. it's the the perfect perfect moment i also love about this scene it's just before he gets in the mustang he there's the there's the crash and when he wakes up he's kind of like there was, like, the taste of dust in my hooves or something like that. <laughs> and I was, like, I was such in the head of an Andalite at this point in the Animorph series that I'm like, oh, I, I totally know what you mean,
2: man. So other things that we learned about Andalites besides Elephant Gorgeous being super cool.
1: They idiomatically use the same expressions as we do about their hearts. They say sick at hearts. Yeah. Um, I think maybe his heart, his hearts are full later or something. Or oh, broken, okay, maybe. His hearts were breaking. That's right. Oh.
2: Yeah, and I think you were saying before Ted that like, it's like sort of a missed opportunity in world building if you have multiple hearts. They could each represent sort of a different thing as opposed to just being grouped together. Right. Your angry heart. Human heart. Yeah. Your sad heart. Your happy heart. Your loving heart. I guess they don't have that many hearts. I don't know how many hearts they have. Ten hearts. <laughs> they just have a lot of heart. They're great athletes. Uh, what else also, did we learn? Good. We learn that. Uh, Andalites maybe never had books, which is weird. Uh, oh, yeah. He describes small objects that looked like hundreds of rectangular sheets of paper glued together on one side. I have to assume, so we know Andalites have written language because Jake recognized that language in the message when that piece of the ship like washes on shore. So they must have just had a different, like they must have not had books like formatted in the
0: way that we did. Although Axe at one point says that this is... Humans are amazing. They created books before they created computers. Yeah, that's pretty silly.
2: <laughs> right. It's
1: that. really weird.
0: <laughs> I think that was... I mean, that was, I think,
2: just for the comic effect, and also for people loving books. Yeah. Because, like, obviously, you would have a written language before you develop computers, if you have a written language at all, like that... Yeah. We learned that Andalites don't nod to express assent. Mm. So... Mm. Elfengor says, Lauren nodded her head. I wondered what this meant. So the motion of nodding one's head is something he recognizes, but he doesn't have like that meaning attached to it of like, yes, I agree. Or, right. Yes, go on.
1: Yeah, they, I, they don't seem to have a lot of body language that doesn't involve their tails. Right. Because mm. he's weirded out when Lauren hugs him in the first part, too. Right.
2: Yeah. He says humans like to use touch. It seems odd at first, but I had gotten used to it. To which I was like, yeah, I bet you have. Uh-huh. Uh, but yeah, it seems to be not a very Andalite thing. We learn that Axe is probably actually about 20 years old in like, when oh, the yeah, animals he's a, start. He's
1: a wish flower now, but he'll be born soon. And it's, right, so yeah. he'll be
2: born presumably within the next year or so. and But he's still not fully mature, Perfect. so Andalites, we know, live about twice as long as humans. So
1: it makes sense. Take
2: a little longer to get to maturity.
1: Maybe he's only like you know, nine Andalite years <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if you're really, really
2: young. <laughs> this uh, might explain some stuff, but it's going to shoot some holes in our Axe Marco shipping theories, so I don't like it. All
1: right, you're right, yeah.
0: That also leads to some questions about the uh, picture in Elthangor's... Oh, that's right! Uh, ...in his ship when he crashes on Earth, they see an image of two adult uh, yeah. andalites, mm-hmm. two children mm-hmm. andalites, and as you pointed out last time, that means it couldn't be Elthangor and acts because they, right. they were never they were kids them. at the same time. So Elfinger's
2: spouse and children, unclear. I don't like it. Yeah. Maybe, see I'm going to say this and now you'll know that it doesn't happen because I wouldn't say it if it was going to happen. Maybe Lauren becomes an Andalite Nothlet and they raise children together. Huh.
1: <laughs> That's cute. I like it. I love it. That'll Let's probably happen. That.
2: That'll probably happen. Yep. Seems right. I don't remember the third part. So. All right. Were um, there other andalite. We fans? learned that okay. any trained andalite can handle a horquigir one on one. They're fast. We're faster. That's just good info to have.
1: That's well, fair. So that I think great. we've seen axe is a yeah. pretty good fighter. Axe is that a definitely really makes yeah.
2: sense. Yeah. Axe and that crocodile. Took on Ooh, a croc. Yeah. That was really impressive. Oh, we learned. <laughs> this was one of my favorite things. Alfengor says, I don't believe in psychic things, although some Andalites do. They literally talk to each other's minds. <laughs> so...
1: <laughs> That's really silly. Yeah. That's incredibly silly.
2: I mean, probably means he, he doesn't means believe in like yeah, like, yeah like, like telling the future and like yeah right. but he's a but
1: mistakes. he's he's yes. also afraid of elemists right we get a That's bunch true. of like things where he's like oh there are these fairy tales he believes
2: elements. he maybe believes in Elements. he doesn't believe in psychic things right
1: though he does have a very sciencey explanation for lauren about how it's an extra-dimensional being and they're like flat people on a piece of paper i did enjoy that, that. Are 3D. That's a good metaphor. it
0: was very flatland mm-hmm. yeah and very wrinkled in time which also reminds me just speaking of the elemist the Elmists apparently created the Time Matrix, mm-hmm. which possibly means that actually there are only two kinds of time travel, as opposed to the three that we recently mentioned. So there's definitely the Sario rip, mm-hmm. then there's the Time Matrix, and then there's whatever the Elmist did in book seven, seven. The in book seven right? right, the Stranger, uh, where he kind of brings them around the world and then shows them a possible future and a possible, mm-hmm. you know, so there's definitely, possibly the Elemist is just tapping into the time matrix to do his thing, and therefore there's only that and the, the Sario rip,
2: mm-hmm. but also
0: maybe there's lots of different kinds of time travel. Yeah,
2: my my thinking about the time matrix was that Elemists developed the ability to travel through time, and then they made a machine that would do it, mm-hmm. so... I feel like he could probably just, you know, he can just bend space and time however he wants, but, you know, maybe not, who knows. Uh, Ted, I do remember that you had some interesting thoughts on the mechanics of the time matrix and on its size. All right. We can have a
1: time <laughs> matrix sidebar here. So the time matrix is apparently, it has the power of 10 suns inside yeah. it, which is, sounds impressive, right? The power yeah. of 10 suns. Yeah. But we also learned that a Z space engine is about as powerful as one sun, mm-hmm. right? So let's think about sort of technology, at least the way computer technology has worked in, you know, the later part of the 20th century is that um, processing power gets twice as strong every two years, mm-hmm. right? So if you imagine a, uh, a giant spaceship engine that uh, is the power of one sun and then a, what is it, like 10 meter diameter sphere? Something like that. Um, as having the power of 10 suns and that giving you the power to travel through time. We're only talking about, like, conservatively 30 years for the Andalites to be able to get that kind of raw power.
2: I think this is a false premise, though. They already have that kind of power because they can move 10 ships into Z-space. Like, I think it's not about raw power. I think it's about knowing what to do with it. We were also asking, like, why does Elfengor know... How much power it takes to move something through time. And Ted, I think you suggested that maybe that's how much power is in a Sario rip. And yeah, the the Andalites can create a Sario rip probably if they want to, but like they can't control time travel. Right. That's, like, very that's a whole different level of technology. Like, so it's not like condensed into this sphere is like necessarily the power of 10 suns. It's like this maybe just works on a different level. Like, like bypasses the energy needs of like 10 z-space engines and like right plays yeah. directly with the fabric of time
1: and presumably when they travel into z-space they aren't leaving a black hole in their wake or something <laughs> right like a very tiny sun shaped mass oh and yeah we talked about last time with morphing yeah if the anamorphs are moving mass in and out of z-space then do Where they, are they themselves getting that have energy? the power of the sun
2: in the palm of their hands? <laughs> we're just we're all descended from starlight. We're all made of starlight, that's what it is, right? Yes. Yeah. But also so.
0: to move a ship into Z space, presumably they're much smaller than a bug fighter, but still somehow there is enough power that they that is contained in the cube. But or they could something. be okay. accessing the cube because we don't even know if the
2: cube is still there. The cube no. could have been destroyed. We know, so they are using that. I think the there are cube. multiple
1: suns on the Andalite homeworld. Is that right? I think that's right.
2: That might be true. I can't remember.
1: Maybe they're just really small suns. Maybe this isn't even that much power.
2: <laughs> maybe it... sun is just what they call a lamp.
1: Right.
0: This it, does specifically say a medium-sized star. Uh, <laughs> darn it, darn it, Greg. sorry.
1: Well, it's, maybe it's not our medium-sized.
0: <laughs> he meant a medium-sized
2: light fixture.
1: Yeah, The other uh, hole I wanted to poke in my own theory is that maybe Moore's Law doesn't apply to anyone besides humans. Mm, and Humans they do work fast. Right. We know that humans advance crazy fast, and that's why they're so scary to, or so impressive to act, right? And potentially <laughs> oh. scary to everybody. Um, so maybe it's just that Andalites, you know, they're just not that good at innovating in technology. And, you know, once humans in 50 years get Z-space power, then in like 20 years they're going to get time travel power.
2: Oh, wow. So
1: that's going to be really hmm. messed
2: up. I feel like the time traveler should already be here.
1: Right. But you make a good point, Jenny, that the Andalites should be able to build like a planet-sized uh, time matrix at this point already. Yeah,
2: but I don't think they could control it. Like, they could create right. lots of Saria and rips, which would be very We dangerous. also
1: don't know if the time matrix is any easier to control than a Saria rips. We actually, rip. it actually could don't be know how worse, it works at all,
2: right? Right? Well, we also posited last time, which I really liked, the theory that like, maybe it's like the Morphin Q, where if you like, put your hand on it, you develop the ability to travel through time.
1: That's true. But where does that ability come from? Because Elfingor had to be there to give the it's animals true. that true. The
2: power. Elemist has to be there to touch the Time Matrix with you. So where is he? <laughs> well, I think our theory last time was that the Time Matrix is actually hollow, and the Elemist is just hiding inside. I love it.
1: He's just waiting to jump out.
2: <laughs> it's like a giant birthday cake, really. This is what cakes were shaped like in the Elemist homeworld. That's right. The oh. Elemist hiding in the Time Matrix. All right. It's just where he lives. He's annoyed. People moved his house.
1: It's just like, you know... Uh, getting someone a big birthday cake with a stripper hiding inside, <laughs> yes. he's just ready to jump out at oh, any time. How
2: does he strip? <laughs> he Is strips he time from you know space or something. Right. Was he wearing clothes when he showed up in seven? I just remember he was blue. I don't. I don't remember. think it was described.
1: Yeah, blue Elrond. That was. Yeah. So, anything else about the time <laughs> matrix? I have something else about Andalites. Did you have anything oh, else go about Andalites? So, Gray, I need you to come over here, and listeners, I need you, if you want to play along at home, to go to (laughs) andalitetruth.org, because, Gray...
2: That's right, it's brilliant.
1: You have been lied to. We found this, this was posted on the Animorphs Facebook group recently, and I think that we have to deal with it, and there's no better time than Andalite Chronicles Part 2. It's true. So, andalitetruth.org, you have been lied to. K.A. Applegate (laughs) clearly described the Andalites, but the torso is a lie. What? The official art has always been wrong. Now it can be told. So here's the the Andalite. From a distance, you'd think he was a small horse or a deer. He has four hoofed feet that flash with amazing speed. His upper body looks like a horse's neck and head, except that when he gets close enough, you see that he has two smaller human-sized arms sticking out. His head is a kind of a triangle with two huge almond-shaped eyes. Those are his main eyes. There are two extra eyes, each stuck atop a sort of stalk. The stalks stick out of the top of his head and move, pointing the extra eyes in any direction. Andalites have no torsos. Just a horse body and two beefy <laughs> arms coming out of their neck. I hope you're li- looking and watching along because this is the best horror show fan art I've ever seen.
2: Wait, wait, wait. Are those hands... Oh, those are many fingered hands. I thought they were hooves with holes in them. <laughs> okay, no, Those are just so, like the bottom. At so this, arms. this
1: website has collected some fan interpretations of Andalites. <sighs> as I'll scroll by, we'll be able to see some that are more zoomed out. That's my favorite um, You know, here's some like sketchy ones. Um, thanks for the. You the best know.
2: one is the altered cover. So
1: here we go. This one's kind of cute and tolerable. Most of these are horrifying. <laughs> um, <laughs> here's the Skeleton? skeletal version no. of an andelite. Yep, and then of course the modified cover.
0: <laughs> oh no! Oh no! That's what Andalites look it's like. So, they don't so have different.
1: torsos. Oh.
0: Oh my, oh, oh my gosh oh no. my gosh it's so, like um, trogdor anyway <laughs> it is like trogdor oh that's terrible i think the so Indinator. was
1: this um this was another podcast that has championed this theory right is it Fandalites? yeah fandelights.com is where the main thing okay. links to okay. um so we're gonna have to listen to the creation of this theory at some point but sorry to do that to you gray but you had to know <laughs> the truth the truth has to be known it's true. So, the truth
2: is very important. Uh, we would be remiss as an Animorphs podcast if we didn't try to spread the word. Dear Thandelites,
0: I see what you mean, but also, you're the worst. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> That's dreadful. But yeah, I
2: I, I think that uh, probably if there were mentions of Torsos in any of the books, they would have found them, but we should keep an eye out. Okay. The way that Andalites always keep their eyes out because their stock eyes have no right. lids.
1: Yeah. You know, and the I think the Indolighttruth could include something
2: about that's no true. Islands. Actually, so they should really, really get in touch. Uh, yeah, we'll reach really?
1: out. We can have our
2: own our <laughs> own Indolight Truther Andalite Truth two
1: All right, cool. <laughs> where, where <laughs> do we go from here?
2: Totally other topic. I wanted to call out um, how very very strongly this entire series feels about golden hair as the epitome of mm. beauty. Yeah, which I was pointing out last time feels like a little bit. I don't know. It's sort of the most obvious, like sort of European Western beauty standard, like blonde hair is the most beautiful thing. And I feel like they could have really found something more interesting, especially for like Elfengor looking at Lauren, who's a totally different species. Right. You talked
1: about like defamiliarization with the the shoes and stuff. So why isn't he into her nose? (laughs) Yeah. And lights don't have noses. Right.
2: Yeah, or maybe he just really loves two legs, although I guess that he also like Chapman, and you know.
1: Right. Or butts, yeah. right?
2: <laughs> that might be a little much for middle grade series, but...
1: It makes sense, though. Yeah. They don't have butts in the same way. No, it's and true. And he thinks sitting is really funny.
2: Yes. There are so many different things he could have been into. Torsos, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> yes, because the legs <laughs> oh, yeah. don't have them. Like, her arms were on these, like,
0: strange square things that she called shoulders. They were really hot. It's a really good point. I will say, uh, my own personal theory about that is that Michael Grant wrote those parts because <laughs> Catherine Applegate has really lovely blonde hair.
2: Yeah, and that that makes sense to me because yeah, Rachel and Lauren both are like. I mean, Rachel's like the most beautiful, and she is blonde, and Lauren also that's like the thing Alvin Gore mm-hmm. picks out.
1: Can we talk a little bit about the Visser?
2: Oh sure. Are you going to talk about how he's really bad at controlling Chapman? The, I or like being undercover. Understand why he's so bad at his job, <laughs> why <they laughs> and why understand. he like advances so much. I guess because Gore makes bad choices. Luck. Yeah.
1: Well, so the plan is pretty good. It's obvious, right? And they get lucky that no one figures it out. Yeah, but they
2: really. I would say they underestimate Elfgar, but no, it turns get out they just. Yurks in and, yep.
1: and Lauren. The subvisor goes into Chapman himself. Put someone in the hork controller that does a pretty good sub 7 impression. Yeah, actually, right? it's really good. Shows a little bit of fear about the quantum virus thing, which is maybe out of character for sub 7, but maybe not. Um, but then, so like, Lawrence Yurk, great actor, runs straight into Elfangor's arms, tends yeah. to his wounds, very sympathetic. I have a side note on the wound tending. And <laughs> sub 7 in Chapman, just like Tamarash in Book 6, keeps screwing up he keeps like having these little like evil looks in his face and doing things that make Elfangor suspicious.
2: Like he like shakes his head at one point. Oh right, he's like, like giving orders fake to Subvisor the 7. right, fake yeah. Seven. A look of
0: triumph. Right. Yeah. At one point, the
1: Yurk who gets shot out into the airlock, you know, doesn't flinch at all. I feel like Subsir Seven in that position would totally throw his superior under, oh, under yeah. the bus, mm-hmm. right?
0: How does he get these loyal subordinates? Right. This is also must be true of the vast majority of the Yerks who are currently controlling humans because there isn't suddenly a rash of people being admitted to, <laughs> you know, therapy for suddenly becoming much more weird with their like looks and their fear of Though, yes. Yeah, no. People, I right. like, can't. You know? pe- people can't tell that uh, right. People are controllers. People controllers are good at it. They're being controlled by Tamrash or viscer three. Apparently, yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. one is really good at it, right? She yeah. makes Marco's dad have the happiest two years of his marriage, uh, right?
2: Don't remind us. Um,
1: but yeah, so fine. the other thing that jumped out to me about this bit where the viscer is in, or the future visor is in Chapman's head is that he has Chapman say, like, oh, I'm just a dumb human kid, you know, give me a break. (laughs) Um, And he's had this experience of being inside Chapman's mind. And yet later, he has no... He's seen Chapman be this, like, devious guy who tries to sell out his people. And he gets to Earth and then doesn't think that human teenagers could do anything like what the Animorphs are doing, right? He's got this, like, blind spot here. So shouldn't he know better? Like, he's met human teens and seen them...
2: Well, That's my theory, stuff. my theory is that being inside Chapman convinced him that human teens and maybe humans in general would never fight for the freedom of their people because they're all selfish and just out for you know their own lookout. <laughs> yeah, you...
1: Chapman's so dumb.
2: But like, because it's not that he doesn't suspect human children. He doesn't suspect humans in general. It like never occurs to him that the so-called Andalite bandits could be humans, right. which fair humans don't morph. But like, I think he might have a really he might have a very different view of humanity than like Viseran does.
1: But he does at least see Lauren being somewhat competent in the end, right? When he boards the ship,
2: I don't know. Maybe how much maybe he sees. maybe he's not
1: there yet. Yeah,
2: because yeah, like she beats up Chapman, which is great. Um, but right.
1: she like kicks him in the crotch. Yeah, <laughs> like, doesn't understand. She kicked him bad. in a place where his legs met his body. <laughs> it looked like it hurt a lot.
2: <laughs> which I think we did raise the question last time. Like, where do the Andalites keep their Chinatalia? We have no idea. Probably not there. Right. But, yeah, yeah, we don't know. But yeah, I don't know if he really sees enough of Lauren. We'll see. Maybe he'll see more of her in part three, and then he has no excuse. But.
0: This also leads us to the discussion of Chapman. What did he get out of this? He tried to sell his entire planet to an invading alien army <laughs> and ended up an assistant principal <laughs> in California.
2: I really, like, I feel hey, like... Given he's...
1: where he is now, I actually think getting out of it with the assistant principal ship is pretty impressive.
2: <laughs> he he he's gets back to, to Earth. He's 15. He gets to be assistant principal. That Fair. was his reward.
0: It's just it's, yeah. it's so small. I'm yeah.
1: definitely giving Chapman too much credit for his display of bravado at the end of part one because he immediately gets invested And
2: <laughs> right. Yeah, I I think it will be interesting to see. I don't really remember what happens with him and the rest of this. How does he get to be assistant principal of a middle school in California after why all these space join... shenanigans?
0: Yeah, why didn't he join NASA and, you know, spend from 15 to thirty five yeah. learning about space travel so he could be prepared for when the Yurks actually invade. That is it is unclear. We'll have to find out That's what I would have done.
1: I also wanna say that the Visser clearly doesn't hasn't developed his sense of humor fully at this point because mm. at the end when they're both dying, <laughs> but the the line that he says to Elfangor is you're a real source of agitation.
2: <laughs> Very it's frustrating. It's a terrible, <laughs> terrible <better>? line. <laughs> it's oh, understatement. Yeah, as opposed to the line he has in uh, in the invasion when he finally defeats Goro when he says, like, was it like, nothing, nothing like can... a good Antarian bog for taking a bite out of your enemies. Right.
1: And he's had 20 years to come <laughs> up with that. I guess he, he hasn't really developed it that much. <laughs>
2: No, it it took him the first 15 years to come up with that, and then he played with the wording for the last five years. Although, to be fair, he probably has a bunch of different lines for, like, if he defeated Elfingor in different circumstances.
1: <laughs> That's true. <laughs>
2: like, nothing like a good loveton javelin fish for poking a hole in your enemies.
1: Oh my gosh. <laughs> Now, I want this as like a series of fortune cookie fortunes.
2: You <laughs> just need a Twitter account. Nothing that's like just... a yeah, no, a, a Twitter
1: bot is perfect. Nothing like an X for <laughs> Y <Y-ing> and a Z <laughs> of your enemies. <laughs> there are a couple. There are a couple bits that I wanted to highlight. Okay, good um, point. So, really good action scenes in this book. Mm-hmm. There's at least one really good horror scene, which is when after their cool moment where they shoot down the bug fighters. Arborin is having this, he's having, this is where he's having a really tough time controlling his morph. Mm-hmm. And we kind of mentioned this, like, suicidal instinct. So what he does is he tries to lean into his super strong, giant, carnivorous body and say, like, Hey, Alfangor, you gotta let me use the time matrix to go back in time and save myself, or I'm gonna eat you, right? And Alfangor's like, "Ah, uh, no, don't do that, don't do that. And he's like, how are you gonna stop me? And he kind of, like, charges him. And there's this whole thing where he lifts up off of the, the deck and his, like, whole upper body is, like, on top of Elfangor And he's going to, like, body slam him. And Elf is trying to process all this and try and figure out a way out of it. And he says at some point, well, I knew that inside was the scared wrist, but what I saw was the nightmare worm. Mm,
2: um, the nightmare And there's worm. this whole
1: thing where he has a gun and it's set to stun. And Arvin's like, oh, you fool, they've reversed, you know, the Skritna reversed the technology. So you got to turn it up to turn it down to turn it up. And then Arben was obviously lying to him, and Elfinger ends up shooting a hole in the hull. But it's this—it's this—it's this whole great thing.
2: There are a few other horrible moments, like when the uh, the living asteroids are attacking the Andalite ships. There's a moment where the pilot was blown clear out into empty space. He kicked his hooves for a few seconds, then he stopped moving. The image of him kicking his hooves is just like really got to me.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's tough. And there's the, um, this isn't, I guess, a, a horrible moment, but it's when they, uh, Arbrin is saying, like, tell everyone I died or whatever when you're when they're leaving, and Aloran gives him his, like, last-minute promotion. He's yeah. basically like, Aris Arbrin, no, Warrior Arbrin died on yeah. the Texan homeworld, and, like, that's the story, mm-hmm. and then they fly away, and that's the last we ever see of Arbrin.
2: And, like, military is full of lies. Yeah. I liked how Officer uh, 7 really just, like, got right on the, like the mental scream as soon as he was in Andelite body he like, <laughs> yeah he developed he his spread his like thought aura. speech horror like, right instantly it's very impressive that he got it so quickly yeah it's true
1: so should we talk a little bit about the very end this weird dome ship living asteroids thing that happens well
2: it seems like it's going to be a tough situation to get out
0: of the living asteroids thing is pretty cool it reminded me of the Valique,
1: sort of the energy. Oh yeah, tons energy. energy. Yeah. And, right. And so Lauren is the one who figures out. Lauren is so much energy. smarter than Elfingor. Right. So she's like very competent, especially compared to, to Chapman. And then elfinger has this. He they get docked by the blade ship, and he's like, "Well, if I can, if I'm going to get eaten by these living asteroids and have the time matrix or whatever, I might as well take the the abomination down with me." And so he does this like point blank shot thing into the hull of the ship, and then mm-hmm. then they explode, and they're all you know running out of air. But it's a pretty good. Uh, last stand maneuver. Mm
0: -hmm. And then they're going to
2: die, I guess, at the beginning of Part 3,
0: right, Yeah, Apparently. (laughs) And he says, maybe it doesn't matter, maybe it's pointless to fight. Arbrin, gone. Aloran, worse than gone. Terrible things. Terrible sights. Let it all end. Nothing to worry about. Nothing to be afraid of. Let it end, Alphangor. Just let it end. Dun, uh, dun,
1: yeah. dun. And that's where the whole book ends, right? Yes, that's
0: the end. Yeah, there are only two done. parts of the Analyte Chronicles. Oh, so that what was a pretty bummer. good, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, time.
1: okay, great. What's going to happen next? <laughs> it's prediction time.
0: Part three is called An Alien Dies.
2: As we know from part two, the titles are very helpful for the content. So useful.
0: Um, I have a two-part prediction. Okay. I'm sticking with my prediction, you guys. I've had time to think about it. I'm still yeah. sticking with it. So I think the alien that dies is going to be Lauren. Because Mm -hmm. Alvin Gore has clearly grown attached to her. He likes her very much. They're going to go on a date on Earth. But sometime in the course of the events of the third part of this, uh, she's going to die. Mm -hmm. I think she's going to die after she and Alvin Gore have a fling. Now, this is predicated (laughs) on them being... Her being twenty, which is how old I thought she was, and not fifteen, which is how old apparently she actually is. I but
1: think Chapman's fifteen, and we, she's younger.
2: Yeah, we Sorry. don't, we don't know worse. for sure.
0: I, my guess was she's fourteen, and Chapman is fifteen, but we don't really know. Okay, I'm holding out hope that she's twenty, and then has a baby, and that baby is twice. So if the first—that's not true. So the
2: first two parts of the book take place in like a few mm-hmm. days, and then the third part, fast she forward. gets pregnant, has baby, no, no, fast and then dies. Well, if
0: she's fourteen, fast forward oh, six okay, years. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Gore comes back to visit. It's very um, Guardians of the Galaxy. Ah, you know, the alien comes okay. Yep, yep. Once in a while. Um, no, okay, so she's 14, not 20, so that is all garbage. <laughs> um, and actually, she's still going to die, I think, in battle. But the things that need to be wrapped up are how they get out of this battle, mm-hmm. how they get the time matrix Back to Earth, because mm-hmm. it's, it's on Earth during the beginning of this book. So the, the mm-hmm. beginning of this said, I'm back on Earth, I'm dying. Of course I'd be on Earth. There's a child, there's the time matrix. So somehow the time matrix has to arrive on Earth, yeah. and somehow a child has to become important. I don't know who this child is going to be. I'm hoping it's Tobias, even though the timing does Oops. not work out at all. What I if don't Tobias
1: know. was just held back a lot?
0: <laughs> <laughs> Awful lot. <laughs> Also, where are they going to put the time matrix? Is it going to end up in the basement of the mall? These are questions I have, so they've got to figure that all out.
1: what are the answers, Craig? He needs to are. the answers. Yeah, I'm so sorry. <laughs> You've correctly identified the questions.
0: Good first uh, Okay, step. So uh, the they're going to uh, go to Z space to avoid to escape from the living asteroids, and then somehow the dome ship is going to pick them up with the time matrix and drop. Chapman and Lauren back on Earth. Chapman's going to shoot Lauren. <gasps> yeah. Whoa. Maybe he doesn't realize what the setting's on. So he thinks it's <laughs> the phaser set to stun, but it's... It a just needs to be children. a better
2: exotologist.
0: Yes. And uh, then they go I back to... Everyone needs to
2: learn exotology. That's the lesson of this book.
0: That really is. It's. I'm going to take a class when I go home. I think this may have been the start of uh, the computer science craze. Oh. Kids read this and they're like, oh Yeah, yeah. They don't computer want to, science.
2: you know, dial their... Their shredders to the wrong
0: setting. Exactly. So you gotta learn computer science. Um, and then they're gonna drag the Time Matrix back to Earth where it belongs and bury it in a field that later becomes the construction site next to the mall. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons the Andalites are coming back, is because they know the Time Matrix is there. They oh. have to protect it from the Yerkes.
1: Mm. Okay. So Wolfinger does kind of join the Andalite CIA. Yes.
2: <laughs> yeah. So are the Andalites fine with, like, we'll just bury this thing back on Earth? They
0: don't want to use it? Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> because if they do, the living asteroids will eat them.
2: Ah, okay. Maybe the elves will come out and be like, you, you ruined my birthday cake.
0: Maybe then. Yeah. He will come out of the birthday cake. <laughs> so your prediction
1: is the time matrix is never used?
0: Not in this book. Okay. All right. <gasps> Maybe that's how they zap forward and backward in time. <laughs> go forward to an appropriate age concern for both of us. <laughs> We're going to develop a grown-up relationship. <laughs> Have a kid, uh-huh. and then just go from there. Okay. And then
1: All abandon right. him in the future.
0: I mean, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Tobias already has a very tragic backstory. At least ties it together. Wow.
1: Not only does Elf Angor create Viscera 3, but then he... Cre- that's, that's... That is It's dark. his character assassination in this book. He's wow. gone... He's fallen so far from the heroic prince who yeah. gave the dwarves their Morphic powers. He was never a hero. Turns a, out
2: that was breaking a lot anyway. Yeah, he's he was a, always a renegade. He's a
1: deadbeat dad.
2: It's all very bad.
1: <laughs> Here you go, kid. Be Hawk forever. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So anyway, uh,
2: I'm looking amazing. forward to seeing all that play out. Seriously, who is three. the child
0: going to be? I have, I just, I want to read it to find out. Child inside the time matrix. We're gonna do it next week. <laughs> it's a stripper it's a baby. It's, not,
2: it's actually it's a not giant a egg. Okay. It's
1: a giant egg. Okay. <laughs> the power of ten
2: sons. It's a different it's kind of sun. Like, oh, I know. Yeah, it was a typo. They meant S O S. What do you
1: even call them? They it? have De- 10
2: hu- human babies named Tobias, and Dex they're Tuplets. all inside the Time Matrix waiting to hatch.
1: <laughs> the clutch of eggs. Oh, it's so fitting.
2: So, I, I forgot to tell my theory that I developed since we first recorded this episode. Do you have theories? Of course. I do. have a theory. Um, <laughs> which is that what if it actually is a Lauren, and Lauren and a Lauren are the same person somehow? <sighs> And Lauren went back in time and got trapped in Angelite form and is a Nothlet who then got disgraced in the Harkadjir Wars. It's perfect. It's flawless. It has no, no holes in this theory. I have some concerns <laughs> with her decision that this is her second time around. <laughs> well, she got really traumatized by what she did in the war. Yeah.
1: That makes it even worse.
2: So that, that means... She
1: ends up eating him. <laughs> so sad. Wait, but he's. Wait,
2: but that does mean that if before that happens, she is she and Elfingor have a child. That means that Tobias is the child of Elfingor and Visor Three.
1: They do kind of have that <laughs> the, hate nemesis love the nemesis thing. love thing. Yeah, yeah. thing. Yeah.
2: yeah, I think this is what happens.
1: No, okay, okay. Alren, I totally ship him with Jahar, the oh. woman he named his ship after. Well, yeah, no,
2: that's reasonable,
1: right? Yeah. So that's, unless that's Elfengor true. becomes an andalite woman named jahar <laughs> you're in right their, that is the that's only hole the, in my theory and so that's that must the photo no the photo <gasps> on the ship is is Alrin and jahar and their two kids who are nameless from their Andalite, oh, and like Jake can't AU tell roles.
2: Andalite's apart. He hasn't seen enough of them to like be able to distinguish. So yeah, he doesn't exactly. Recognize exactly. that it's Visor Three right. in that picture. I like this.
1: So they're just going to yeah. be like time hopping, having all sorts of babies. <laughs> Basically, every character, every important character, is one of the ten sons of. <laughs> yes, the and pun
2: contains Aloran. the secret of this series. Right. All right. Perfect. Yeah. yeah we okay. have to stretch a little to get to. Time I'm glad we have characters. theories now. This is yeah. great. You should always have theories. She's the only one. All right, so yes, we're going to find out how valid, at least some of these theories are next time. End like Chronicles Part three. If you want to find us, we are at anamorphology.com
0: and at anamorphology on Twitter. Subscribe on Apple iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening to this podcast. And don’t forget to rate us, review us, and recommend us to your friends. And if
1: you want to read along, you can find a link to the Animorphs e-books on our website. That's um, that's our episode title. That's amazing.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. All right. (laughs) This is going to go great, you guys.